Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Going to a comedy festival every night, all these comedians, we going at it, you know, um, down on 126, I think, in Normandy. Boy, that was, oh, that street was lit up at night, you know, from everybody going after each other, you know, joking. You got Chris Tucker, you got A.J. Johnson, you know, Tiny Lister, who's real big, him and I was going at it. You know, it was just a lot of fun. That was one of the, one of the, I, I think going to work was just, uh, that was just so easy. I, I couldn't wait to get to work. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am so excited today. I'm pumped. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce you. Everybody get some popcorn. Let's go to sleep together. Tony Cox's thriving career spans some 30 years and has put him alongside some of the most respected directors and distinguished actors of our time. Grossing over $1 billion in all the films he's been in. With over 85 film and television credits to his name, Tony Cox has been featured in a wide range of projects with roles in Bad Santa, Star Wars, Me, Myself, and Irene, Date Movie, Disaster Movie, and television shows like Rescue Me with Dennis Leary and Martin, as well as music videos with artists like Eminem, The Foo Fighters, and Snoop Dogg. Joseph Anthony Tony Cox was born on March 31, 1958 in Manhattan and spent his childhood in Uniontown, Alabama with his grandmother and grandfather. By age 10, Cox was already an avid drummer, originally planned to study music, but couldn't read music, and instead decided to pursue acting after watching Billy Barty, a little person who was also an actor. With encouragement from his relatives, Cox moved to Los Angeles, and at the age of 18, he began taking classes at the Merrick Studio School. Tony landed his first film role in 1980 with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hype, and then in 1981 appeared in the third Cheech and Chong feature, Nice Dreams. Two years later, Cox played an Ewok in Star Wars Return of the Jedi and went on to also star in the Ewok-based spin-offs, The Caravan of Courage, and The Battle for Endor. 
In the late 80s, Cox appeared in George Lucas's Willow, Mel Brooks's Star Wars parody Spaceballs, as well as Tim Burton's 1988 hit Beetlejuice. Cox has appeared in several high-profile music videos that have been viewed by millions and millions of people, including Breakout by the Foo Fighters, Just Lose It by Eminem, and From the Church to the Palace by Snoop Dogg. Cox recently featured films included the 20th Century Fox comedy Date Movie with Allison Hannigan and Eddie Griffin and Jennifer Coolidge, an epic movie with Cal Penn and Fred Willard, both by writer-directors Friedman and Seltzer. Cox is well-known for his scene-stealing roles as Indiana Jones in Disaster Movie, Friday Opposite Ice Cube and Chris Tucker, Me, Myself, and Irene Opposite Jim Carrey, and Oz the Great and Powerful, directed by Sam Raimi, which grossed over $300 million and had Cox co-starring as James Franco's loyal companion, Nuck. He is perhaps best known for his lead role in Bad Santa opposite Billy Bob Thornton, where he plays Marcus, the foul-mouthed brains of a safe-cracking team. Cox reprised his iconic role for Bad Santa 2, which is just open in nearly 3,000 theaters for this upcoming holiday season and is presently the number one comedy movie in America. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Tony Cox. Thank you very much. I am so happy to see you. I haven't seen you in so long. How you doing, brother? I'm doing good. Just happy to be here to see you, Barry. I haven't seen you in a while. What do you feel when you sit down next to me? Oh, it's a good feeling. You know, you and I go back a long ways. You know, you gave me that opportunity. And, uh, you know, you, you were my manager. I love managing. You're one of the most amazing people. But one of the things that I found that was so hard about our relationship as a manager and client which frustrated me if you were to look at all the movies and television programs that are released in a year if there's seven roles that are listed for a little person that would be a miracle and so whenever you were sent out for those roles probably half the time you got them yeah but it's still in my mind not enough how do you deal with the fact that you're in a profession where there's so many limited opportunities? How do you mentally stay prepared? It's very frustrating. You know, it's a very frustrating thing because they just don't write. Writers just don't write good roles for little people. But then I also must say there are a lot of little people that can't act, and I think they should get themselves together. You know, you got people coming from everywhere, you know, thinking because they're little that they, that they can act or they're funny. And it doesn't work that way, and it makes it bad for all little people. But thankful for me, I mean, I don't have to read for roles anymore. So I'm glad I'm out of that position because, you know, they used to always, if they chose a little person and he didn't do the job, then they would always say, little people can't act, which puts you in that group. But because of Bad Santa and the other movies that I've done, I'm not characterized with that group. Also, Peter Dinklage. Warwick Davis, and there are a few others. But it's, it's, well, you know what I went through because you tried to book me and it was tough, you know. But thank God, you know, Bad Santa came along and that opened up a lot of doors. After Bad Santa, I didn't read for any more roles. Let's say a director is doing a movie, an established director. Let's just take Quentin Tarantino. 
and he's doing a movie, and there's a role for a little person. There's a great role here, but he wants you to read. What do you say? I'm not reading. I'm not, you know. I was the one that made up my mind that I would not read for roles anymore because if you look at it, I'm one of the top little people that's out there, and I've been in the business for a long time. So why should I read? I mean, you know me. You know what you're getting. So I'm just not going to read. You know, when I made my mind up, it was the fact that, okay, I might lose some jobs, and I might lose money over it, but my mind is made up, and I'm not going back. So tell our audience the moment that you decided, I'm not reading anymore. What happened? Well, it was uh, after I did Bad Santa. That was it. You know, I roles were coming in, and I didn't have to read for them. And then it was just came a time when I, you know, I thought about it, and I was like, why should I read for roles? Everybody know who I am, so why should I read? And it was at that point that I said, no, I'm, I'm not reading. And Mark even put something to me. Your manager now, Mark Russo, who's an amazing manager and an amazing man who I work with. You know, he said, suppose Eddie Murphy called, and I had to think about that. And actually, I did get a call, and I read, but it wasn't a part for a little person, but they said we would see him, and it was for uh, Norbit. And I did go in. I remember Norbit, and I was working with you at the time, with Mark, and I think I was really adamant that you read. I didn't blame you for not reading, but I thought it was an interesting role. It wasn't a role for a little person. It was just a regular role, and that was why I was so adamant about it, because I knew it was the kind of role that could be a breakout role, and it ended up going in a Cat Williams. And that was the role that really broke his career in film. I'm fascinated by the no-reading thing, and I think to myself, like Clint Eastwood has this thing where he feels for actors. He wants them to read. He wants everybody to read, but he won't go in the room. So he has them go on tape either alone in their own house and just send it in, or he has them go if they prefer with a casting director, but he won't be in the room because he feels like it makes an actor uneasy. So if there was like an Academy Award-winning director or somebody like that who wanted you to read, I think if I were representing you, we'd end up going toe-to-toe, battling it out, and I would try my hardest to convince you to read because I would rather have you lose a role by reading rather than lose it by not reading. I want to change this up. I'm Jewish. There's this expression called self-hating Jews where we hang around. Sometimes we go to a Jewish get-together and we're just like... Oh, Jesus. I can't believe I'm a part of this tribe. Are there some times where you're hanging out with little people and you're like, ugh, dirty, rotten world. I hate these fucking people. Well, I, I don't really, you know, hang with them too much. I used to, you know, like back in the day. But I just kind of like hang with my family. Um, but I have been around them. You know, I played basketball on the teams with them. And, you know, um, and they're a good group to hang out with, you know. I mean, they might get into their own thing sometimes where we do get rowdy, you know, because, hey, we little people, you step on us when we dancing, you know, people butts be hitting us in the face, so, you know, you got to push them over. I've seen some little women gave them a sock to the butt, you know, like, hey, you know, and they said the word, get off, 
you know, so no, but they all right, you know, I, I like my little people. What's little people basketball like? You have to see, I have a documentary that out, and I could shoot the ball from half court. I used to average like about 18 to 20 some points a game, and we won some championships in basketball. I played with two teams. One team was the Hollywood Shorties. We were similar to the Globetrotters. And then we had another team that we competed against little people. We won about seven, seven, eight, or nine championships. But I played on about four or five of those championships teams. And I also have, I have a gold medal in basketball four, and I have a gold medal in table tennis because I ruled in table tennis. That's something you don't know about me. I don't know that. So when you play basketball in these leagues, is the court the same and the height of the hoops the same? The court's the same. The hoop's the same. We only have one rule when we're playing against average-sized people. The ball must bounce once before you can get the rebound, but we can get it any time. So that makes it fair. You used a term that I've never heard before. What's that? Average-sized people. Well, you're not little people, that's for sure. Is that the term? I, I don't know. I mean, some little people say average-sized people, and some say they don't like to say average-sized. What is average, you know? But I use average-sized. That's what I say. Tell me what offends you that people would say to you or terms that people would use to describe your disability. The M word. The M word. Yes. You know what that is, right? Yes, I do. Yeah. That's a word that we don't like. That's a word. It's almost as bad as saying the N word. It's not quite there, but it's close. It's a word that if you're a little person and you're walking and somebody says that word, it'll like stop you in your tracks. It's a word that we do not like. And if you say that word to me, I'm going to tell you my name. I'm Tony Cox. And if you use that word again, then I'm going to say something that's probably going to make you mad and upset you where you might want to try to do something to me, but I'm proving a point to you that I don't want to be called that name. I've said it to you once. I've told you. Now, since you did it again, I'm letting you know how I feel. Did you like what I just said? And that's how. And I'm glad that they have all these shows coming out about little people so people can see. And you, in all these shows, we do not like that word. And, and I'll just say the word is midget. Please, if you see a little person, do not say that word. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. I represent a little person who's a comedian, who's done two Showtime specials, and in his act, 
he uses the M word a lot. I think he uses it similarly to how Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock use the N word. He feels because he is a little person, he has the right to use the word. And he upsets a lot of little people when he uses the word. Can I share with you something he said by sure. using the M word? Yeah. He has this line where he says that one time little people picketed his shows and they were in front of his show with the signs. Of course, they were little index cards, but they had the signs. The leader of the group said, listen, we're here because we're upset because you use the M word and the M word is like the N word to a black person to us and we'd appreciate it if you stop using it. And he looked at the leader of the group and he said... Midget, please. Wow. <laughs> but there are things that get him really upset if he's with his fiance who's average size right. and he'll have a moment with her at the airport where he's kissing her and she's Asian and somebody will drive by. Honey, look at that. A dwarf and an Asian woman. We've seen it all. <laughs> and I noticed when he met my kids, I felt like he was a little tentative and then he warmed up and they were wonderful and they had a great time with him and they went to his special and they were so happy but he told me later that kids are really hard to be around they just don't have the social graces and they can say the worst things yeah. and then you have to be a certain way you can't be mean to the kids right right i mean you know with him saying the word yeah you know He's a little person. If he wants to say it, I mean, he can say it, but that lets you know that he doesn't like that word because when he's out and when that person said what they said to him, look at the dwarf and the Asian lady, he didn't like that. And just with kids, you know, kids will come up, but kids don't know any better, but it's the parents that if they see a little person and the kid didn't see the little person, they'll touch their kids and like, look, look, you know, and it's the adults that's, you know, that's got this mind and, and having them to look when they should be teaching them that, you know, if you see a little person, you know, what we'd like if you come up and talk to us. You know what I mean? We'll explain it to you if you want to know why we're little. You know, we'll explain it. But when you have an adult that's having a kid to look, look, look at him, you know. It's like we're not from the Ringling Brothers Circus. I mean, some of us have worked in it. But, you know, that's not right. You know, who's the kid in that situation? The parents are the kids, you know. It's 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 just something that hurts. Share with our audience the first time where you really were crushed by what somebody said. Hmm. Well, it's you know basically, it's somebody said you know look at the look at the midget, and and that was crushing. I mean, I go through. I don't go through it now because people know who I am. Even kids know. But man, that's. People don't realize how much that hurt, and it was like, look at look at the midget, you know. Um, I I, you know, over and over again, I just can't say it enough how that hurts, you know. And people need to understand how it hurts, you know. Um, that's the only way I know to explain it. I, and I'm just so grateful that they have these shows out now that show how we. We just don't like that word, how that word affects us. You know, and that's the only way I can explain it. Now, you met your wife in high school. No, I, I knew her in high school. I would, you know, I would see her, you know, and she was the prettiest girl by far. 
in the whole school, but I just would see. I saw her like about three or four times, and I was like, you know, I was outside one day. I was like, boy, that girl is pretty. And it was a guy standing on the side of me, a friend of mine. He said, what girl are you talking about? I said, that girl right there. And he said, that's my sister. And I said, well, she's still pretty. You know? <laughs> she's still pretty, you know. But he was a classmate of mine and a good friend. And it was way later when I was out in L.A. and she came from New York to L.A. And um, a friend of mine, when I went home one year, uh, a girl that she used to hang with, they used to be together a lot. Um, she, uh, I, I saw her and I said, um, do you remember that girl you used to hang with? And she said, yeah. And then I said, well, if she come down, can you give her my phone number? And so I think she was a little surprised because she was trying to hit on me. The girl that, you know, I was telling, you know, can you, I'm going to give you the number. Can you give it to her? And she said, she'd probably be down this year. So she came down and she said, I was wondering why did you want my number? Because you and I had never talked or anything in school, you know. So she gave me a call and we would talk over time. And But she was always calling me and I set up a date three times, copped out, got scared. You got scared or I, she got scared? I got scared, you know. And then I think about the third time. You know, she said, I said, I'm sorry, you know, something happened. I had to do something. You know, she was saying, well, I know you have a lot of things to do and you're busy and everything. And I really wasn't at that time. I was just nervous, you know. But once I, I took her out to this Mexican place, man, I got a shot at that. Uh, well, I had a, what is it, a strawberry margarita. And once that went in, you know, it started to feel a little better, so I had good conversation with her. So what you're saying is you recommend alcohol for getting some action? Well, I tell you, I've always been shy. And that, that alcohol kind of, you know, you know, it gave me nerves enough to talk to her. You know, we had a great conversation. And then I said, well, we'll go out again. And she said, okay. And she said, that's when I knew you were interested. Well, the size of those margaritas at those Mexican restaurants probably bigger than you were. Yeah, they were. You know, it doesn't take much to go to my head. <laughs> <laughs> so were you ever attracted to little people who were girls? Uh, I don't know. In, in my mind, coming up, I never had a problem with girls. Well, a lot of little people have, especially with average size. How do you gain the strength of somebody who, I think you're three feet, six inches tall, right. to know that you can get the attention of a beautiful woman who's average size and that you can get them to a point where they'll be intimate with you? Yeah, well, like I said, everything is still the same, you know? Everything is still the same. If 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 you're a woman and I'm the guy... You know, you don't need this other part of the legs. You put me there, I'm everything, I can reach everything, everything is there. It's no different, you know. It, it was just, uh, when you want something, you go after it. I mean, that gives you nerves, you know. And uh, I wanted a real bad, I didn't know whether I was going to get her or not. But I took a shot. And, uh, and actually, she almost, it almost didn't happen because she said, you never let me know that, that we were like an item. And I said, well, I thought you knew. And she said, I was about to date some other guy because I thought you weren't interested. And, you know, with me, I just thought she knew, you know. But she said, no, you have to tell a woman. And so I finally told her, and there it was. It happened. 
And so you got married and you have a child. So when you're about to make a decision to have a child and you're a little person and you're with an average size woman or vice versa, Uh what are the chances that the child is going to be a little person? Well, you know, that's that's just one of those things. I mean, you don't know. Like for me, I'm a different type. Um, I never did go go through the tests. You know, I let them took some tests, but when they talked about taking a little plug from my arm, it was over. You know, I said, you know, no more. I don't care. You know, I don't care. We have a kid. It's going to be what it's going to be. You know, I don't want to go through all that, you know. Um, and she felt the same way. All right, I want to go way, way, way back in the Wayback Machine, okay? All right. Take us back to Manhattan where you were born. What was the socioeconomic situation with your family? And what was your first inspiration to be in the entertainment business? All right. In the beginning, the only thing about New York I remember, I I know I was born there, but my mother took me to Alabama when I was like about nine months old, you know, and, you know, it was going to be hard for her. Where was your dad? My dad at that time, he was he was out of the army. But I think when she took me to my grandmother, they had gotten a divorce. They had gotten a divorce. So she took me to my grandmother to keep me. And it was the best thing that ever happened because I was raised up in a small town. The town is called Uniontown, Alabama. The best thing that had happened to me, population maybe 2,200 at the time, you know. Um, and my mother would have been overprotective, you know. I mean, she was young. She was 26. She had graduated from college. She was married, and uh, she was a school teacher. But it would have been hard. It would have been hard for her. So she took me to my grandmother. And my grandmother cared for me, you know, but she would send money, you know, to help my grandmother out. So your mom essentially gives you up for adoption within the family to your grandmother. Well, no, not like that. But I mean, mean, she basically gives you up to your grandmother and your grandmother becomes essentially your parent. Yeah, but my mama was always there. It wasn't like she just dropped me off. It was going to be hard and she had to get somebody to stay with me while she worked. And so she, she was, was living in Uniondale? Union? No, she was living in New York. Okay, so, but she went back to New York, and right. your grandmother and grandfather raised you. Yes. Do you ever ask them why they agreed to raise another child after they went through their whole life raising your mom, and then another child is dropped on their doorstep? Why did they agree to that? I don't know, my grandmother just, she just loved me so much, you know, she really wanted to adopt me, you know, but my mom said no, I mean, she just loved me that much, we had a great relationship, and I think the way I am now has a whole lot to do with my grandmother and also my mom, but my grandmother, man, everybody knew her in that town. You know, if you came to Uniontown, Alabama, even the Caucasian people, some of them could tell you about my grandmother, you know, like where she lived. And, and everybody knew me. I was the smallest person in the town. But when your mom brought you to your grandmother's, mm-hmm. did she know that you were a little person? Yeah. Yeah, she At knew. nine months, you know? Yeah. yeah. And in some cases, watching TV9, watching others, there are some little people that look like they could be average 
and we find out that they're little, but for me, mostly it's the head. And a lot of little people are achondroplasia, which is uh, a lot of little people are that, you know, they that type. They call them achons, and I'm not an acon. But I didn't let them run tests on me to find out what I, you know, what I am. Got it. So you're growing up through your formative years there. How many times a year do you see your mom? Every other year. And was it hard to stay close to your mom? And did you start feeling closer to your grandmother than you did your mom? I was always closer to my grandmother because I lived with my grandmother. You know, I lived with her, but I was close to my mom. Now, but when you're living with a person, you know, you're always going to be closer to that person. What about your dad? How often did you see him? Didn't. I think when I saw my dad... Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I think I was in maybe the eighth, maybe the seventh grade, and I went to New York, and we found him. One of my cousins took me to where he was living, and that was when I saw him. Tell me about the meeting. Well, you know, every kid, you know, you want to see your father, and you want to know your father, so... You know, it was fine. I mean, I was happy to see him, you know. But when I saw where he lived at, you know, it was, he wasn't living in a very nice place. It was like a hotel. And, like, you walk in the door, it's like there's one room, and then the bed pulls out from the wall. Murphy bed. Yeah, yeah. And then the kitchen was over here, and it was a bathroom, and then a closet, and that was it. You know, it was, the living conditions were not good. When did you see your father again after that? Um, it was the next time that I drove out to um drove to New York from Alabama. Drove from Alabama to New York. Got it. So you saw him every time you saw your mom? No. Oh no, no, it wasn't even close. Those were the only two times I saw my father and that was it. Never seen him since. Never seen him since. Don't know whether he's living or dead. You know, I tried to find out, but just, you know, had a problem. All right. Tell me your first inspiration for wanting to be in show business. It was a TV show called The Wild Wild West. Didn't that have a little person in the show? That's what I'm, yeah. His name, they call him Dr. Loveless. And I wanted to be like him because, for me, watching him, he was really good at what he did. Besides acting, he could also sing. 
And I just looked at that, you know, his talent. He was just so good. And then they actually showed him kind of in a fight scene where he was going against one of his guys. And I just thought that was great because I had never seen a little person do that before. And he was the one for me that really inspired me. And also, you know, it was Billy Barty, you know, watching him on the love boat, you know, with also they would have him with a wife, and her name was Patty Maloney. I always wanted to work with Patty. And, was uh, Patty average size? No, she was a little person. Had a sweet little voice. And they were on the love boat, and they had an average size son. And that, boy, it was he was so good in that, you know. And also, I think he was on Little House on the Prairie. And he was really good in that, where they were calling him the M-word. And, and they were doing him really bad, and his lady wouldn't give him a job. And at the end of the show, before the end of the show, her daughter had gotten into this well. And nobody could reach her except for him. And he went down and pulled her out of there, you know, and that just kind of brought me to tears. That was a really good good role, and, and he played it. And that's how I thought it would be when I came out to L.A., but when I came out, everybody was in costumes. You know, it was that was the only type of work, costumes. You mean being covered up your face your face covered up being in a costume the the leprechauns or being playing a dog or playing a rat i mean i done played everything from a dog to a rat i've played all those characters to the ewok to um the elephant and michael jackson's captain eo you know that was it you know and a guy had told me that's all i would ever do and i wanted to prove him wrong and who was that guy I can't remember, but it was a school. It was a school that I was planning on going to, but the guy didn't even give me the test because he looked at me and he said all I would ever do is be in costume. And that was when I had just gotten out to L.A. and I had my aunt and uncle who, they were the ones that gave me the opportunity to come to California because they said, you can't make it here in my hometown. They said, you can't make it, and you have too much talent. And they the one gave me the opportunity to come out here and make something of my life. How were you making money at the time, and how old were you? Was it something you decided not to go to college, and you decided to come out before college? And No. Well, um, yeah, I went to college. That's what I was wanting to do. Uh, they came down in the summer, and they saw me, and they were telling me about coming to California and making some of my life. You know, um, but I wanted to major in music. And even though I played at my high school, they had stopped the musical program about eight to ten years before I got there. And when you get to college, you have to know how to read music. So every other subject or anything I took, you know, I didn't have a problem with those. But it was not being able to read music. And I had to think of something else to do, you know, because they said you really need to have gotten it in high school and they said there's nothing we can do and I had to think about something else I wanted to do and I never you know the way God planned it is like they come down that summer give me an opportunity to come never thinking I would go until maybe after I graduated from college but that was what God gave me it was like okay now I got this other thing I can do and we just you know, um, a friend of mine's named George, who was an older guy, he always would go places with me. And I said, man, I need you to help me drive to Los Angeles. And he said, I'm working right now. But as soon as I get the opportunity, you know, we can do it. And he came over like Christmas time. And 
when he came over, we were just talking, and then I said, don't forget, when we get time, you know, I'm ready to go. And he said, we can go now. I said, what happened with your job? He said, I got laid off. And so we left at the end of January of 1977, coming out to California, and that's where it all began. How much money do you have in your pocket, and where do you end up living, and how do you get your first opportunities in the business? Uh, well, when I came out, I had a Ford Galaxy 500, and so it was me, my grandmother, and my friend George. And, and uh, so we, you know, we came out, and my uncle and aunt had already said that I could stay with them. And so they gave me that opportunity, and that was who I stayed with. No, I didn't have much money. Uh, my mother would send them some, but that didn't help them at all. But they just did this. I mean, I called them my aunt and uncle. They were Mr. and Mrs. Robert Fields. But they just gave me, they were just nice people. You know, who gives people opportunities like that? And they gave it to me. I just called them my aunt and uncle because he said, if people question me, you know, question you about it, about, you know, you know, who are these people you stand with? Are they your, who are they? He said, just tell them I'm your uncle and she's your aunt, you know. Take us through the next step in your career. So you come out here, you don't have much money, you're doing costume work. Tell me the first situation where you got your first break where your face was on the screen. Um, it was a commercial called Burger Chef. Phil Silvers played Santa Claus, and it was myself, Billy Barty, and a guy named Joe Gibb. We were elves. Boy, it all comes full circle, huh? Yeah. Your first gig, and now you're in a movie that's the number one movie in America, yeah. and you're playing a demented elf in a way. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Tell me the first time you did a job... And you said to yourself, I'm really good, and I am never going to do any other job again. And I, I think me, myself, and Irene working with Jim Carrey, um, the fact that when I, when I got there and I was in the car and they were saying to me, they said, Tony, how are you, how are you off script? Cause uh, a lot of a lot of the actors here they scared of Jim, of Jim, cause Jim is going all over the place, you know. And they said, "Are, are you okay? Are you nervous about this? Cause you know he'll just go off." And it was like when they said that to me, it's like right down my alley. <laughs> oh, I like this, you know. And I remember thinking, uh, well, anyway. The director was telling Jim, he said, Jim, you got to see this guy do the nunchucks. Because a lot of people don't know this about you, but you're a black belt. Yes, 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 I'm a black belt. Now, the nunchucks, were they in the script? No, I was slick. I took the nunchucks, and I remember it was my third audition. I had taken them on the other two, but I never showed them, never said anything. On my third audition, it was this one guy that kept coming back, and... I didn't know this guy. He was taller than I was. And I, I was like, man, how good is this guy? And it, and it was like, I got to hear this guy. So I remember I was in the waiting room waiting for my audition. And I decided to go out because I wanted him to read before me. I wanted to hear him because it's like he's got to be coming back for a reason. That means he must be pretty good. So I, I said, I'll be back. I got to go to the car. So when they came out to get me, 
they said, oh, he stepped out. So they asked to see the other guy. So I went back in. Normally, I don't like to hear nobody else read. You could hear through those walls. And so I heard him, and he was pretty good, you know. But I still felt like, ah, I'm I'm okay, you know. But for, for some reason, I was nervous that day. And so they called me to come in, and I went in, and I read, and... I, somehow we started talking about the nunchucks and the guy said can you really do them and I said sure and then he said cause this guy right here he's uh, he's a black belt and he said no really you know if you can't do them I said no I, I'm, I really can do it I'm a black belt too and then so he said okay he said well we're gonna have this other person to read and then we're gonna bring you back so he had somebody else to read they brought me back I did the nunchucks and all I could see was the white of everybody's eyeballs in there. I mean, it was just white, like ghosts. And, and so when I finished reading, they, I mean, when I finished doing the nunchucks, they said, wow, they said, uh, Tony, uh, we want you to go back out of the room, but don't leave. Don't go anywhere. Just sit in the room. Okay, we're going to call you back. And so they listened to the other person, and then they brought me back in, and they said, well, you, I know, I'm sure you know by now that you are our guy. And they said, man, where did you learn how to do those nunchucks? You know, and, and, and that was it. The nunchucks pulled it off. When you're doing the scene with Jim, it feels like he has no fucking idea that you're going to pull the nunchucks out. Did the director not tell him? No, he knew that the nunchucks were coming. But I, I told him, I said, look, when I'm working them, on my right side, you slap on this side, you know, because I don't want to. I don't want to hit you, you know. And so he said, "Okay, if you see, you can see where he pauses because I'm doing him, and I want him to come to this side and slap." I choreographed that whole scene because I didn't want to hit him. Because the director was saying, "Well, Tony, you can use whatever chucks you want, you know. If you want to use the real ones," I said, "No, I don't want to use the real ones because if I hit him with the real ones, it's going to be over, you know." And so. He, he did his thing, but he loved working with the nunchucks. And his eyes lit up when he saw him. It's like he was just thinking of so much in his mind what he could do. And I remember not telling him what I was going to do. Because it was some stuff that I had ad-libbed, you know, about the chicken. When I said, because you know how we black people are. We just love fried chicken, Mr. Charlie. You know, and I brought that in about the fried chicken at the end, Mr. Charlie. You know, and boy, then Jim went into his thing. He didn't tell me what he was going to do. I didn't tell him. There was so many people on the street that was just watching us shoot this over and over and over again. Every time we shot it, people were cracking up. Every time. You know, they loved that scene. It just worked well with Jim. And he kept coming over to me and said, man, I would love to do a cop picture with you. Can you imagine? You know, he was just so excited. You know, and I don't know, man, I, I guess I'm good. That's what makes me me. It's when I can ad lib. It's when I can improvise. And that's why I don't like doing TV. You know, movies is my thing because I'm able to do what I like to do. And if I ever get the opportunity to where I can be a producer and get the movie that I want, it's going to be all over because people haven't even seen the best of Tony Cox. It's not even close how funny I can be if I get that opportunity. What do you think in your entire career is the funniest scene you've ever done? That's tough. 
Uh, definitely Friday. People love the scene with Bernie Mac and him in there with my wife, and I'm catching him. Um, and, and the other one is, again, I think me, myself, and Irene. So many people love that. When you can do a scene over and over like that, and there's a lot of people watching, and every time we shot it, people were just laughing, including the director. I mean, uh, it, it was the highlight of my life, just working with Jim. But also in Friday, that was just like going to a comedy festival. Every night, all these comedians, we going at it, you know, um, down on 126, I think, in Normandy. Boy, that was, oh, that street was lit up at night, you know, from everybody going after each other, you know, joking. You got Chris Tucker, you got A.J. Johnson, you know, Tiny Lister, who's real big, him and I was going at it. You know, it was just a lot of fun. That was one of the, one of the, I, I think going to work was just, uh, that was just so easy. I, I couldn't wait to get to work. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.